Hello, and welcome to the Media Copilot, a podcast and newsletter all about how generative AI is changing the media, journalism, and the news. Your hosts are Peter Paschal and John Bix, two tech journalists and entrepreneurs currently exploring the intersection of journalism and AI. Every week, they'll talk about the latest news in the AI industry with a focus on what it means to report and create content in a world that is rapidly changing. Folks, it's the Media Copilot. It's our weekly roundup of all the AI news that is relevant to the media, newsrooms, and journalism. We also have a conversation of the week. This week, I talked to Brennan Woodruff, who is uh, the co-founder of an AI platform called Go Charlie, which I found fascinating. I, I've uh, met him at New York's Tech Week, and you know, I know there's these platforms that do marketing copy or like a dime a dozen and there's GPTs for it now and everything. But these guys actually do their own model, which is fairly rare among the uh, among the AI companies there. And he's sort of a veteran of uh, startups and Silicon Valley. So I wanted to mm-hmm. get his perspective, not just on the AI, AI phenomenon and um, media, but, you know, just where everything's going. And so stay tuned for that. Lots of interesting stuff. But first, let's talk about the uh, the news of the week. Yeah, what do we so, got? Well, we got some stuff hot off the press on Twitter, or I guess I should call it X now, finally. So the uh, an executive from Stability AI, so it's Ed Newton-Rex, and he was leading the audio team there at Stability AI, and... Um, they he he's resigned over the company's opinion that training generative AI models on copyrighted works is fair use. And he made uh, a big statement on Twitter about it I guess mm-hmm. again on the X platform. And he doesn't he disagrees with that. He doesn't think it should be used uh, as fair use anyway. And the idea of creating uh, in particular audio content, uh, but I think you could sort of extrapolate from this to yeah. Well, he, he basically says, okay, he says here, we believe that AI development is an acceptable, transformative, and socially beneficial use of existing content that is protected by fair use. This is what the company said. This mm-hmm. is what Stability said in in a in a uh, statement to the U.S. Copyright Office. Now, the idea of fair use, fair use is fair use is fine in research. Fair use is fine in uh, critique. Um, mm. There's some degree of fair use in uh, academic publishing, but then they expect a lot of uh, they expect a lot of folks to um, do requests and make sure that you're on the up and up when it comes to that. But his, I guess, his statement is like, I just recorded a song, I put it on SoundCloud, for example, right. and it's by all means hop in and grab it their uh, stability because I didn't make that for myself. Apparently, I made it for the world. And there's mm-hmm. one side of me says the guy who makes too much content says, yeah, that's fine. And the guy who wants to get paid for that content says, no, thanks. That's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a bit, um, well, it's not a bit anything. It's, it's the main issue in generative AI and, and sort of the things you got to consider when creating content with it. So this is like a huge issue with respect to, every medium. So in text, it's, you know, we have uh, the the places like the New York Times blocking their archives from things like OpenAI's crawler. 
um, and and various other pubs are doing that. But it makes sense. Like, I mean, you're basically we're at a point now, and it's it's much happening much quicker than I ever thought it would. Where you know you you just get the answer from mm-hmm. whatever you're looking for. And I know creating new content isn't quite the same thing, but in the world of information, that's what it amounts to. You want the right answer, you want the right information. An AI agent goes out and scans presumably news sources for you and brings it to you. Um, those sources should be compensated for that. Likewise, if you create a song uh, or something that is based on this ingested data uh, or an image or whatever, there needs to be something that incentivizes those creators to create that in the first place. Mm-hmm. If this certainly, if this becomes starts to become a significant or primary way that people uh, create things, so like I, I've drawn this distinction before and i think when i was younger you know you had things like napster and the corollaries we had weren't that great because the scale of the internet sort of changes things entirely so why what i used to think was that um i I probably more for fell on the the side of fair use that it's like well you're just doing this at scale it's the same concept but that's the point when you do it at scale, it's not the same concept. It it the scale is the problem or the thing that is transformative here, and it needs some. It needs basically legislation that takes that into account. And whatever I don't know when the last time the fair use laws were updated, but I'm pretty sure it was probably before a lot of things, let alone generative yeah. AI. Well, I mean, look, I think this is the same thing as this is the same thing as like Google News scraping the news and putting and and the SEO, all the SEO tricks are specifically designed to mess with Google enough that it allows that it sends traffic to you as opposed to steals your traffic, which right. is amazingly frustrating as a content creator. But I mean, again, there's because there's no because there's no long tail anymore, there's no way to get interesting new content. Uh via rss or whatever because you'd just be flooded and twitter's been completely destroyed uh threads really doesn't have the cojones to do it anymore distribution's dead yeah just that that uh, now remember this is this is two this is two old dudes talking about it so (laughs) our view of distribution our view of distribution which was formed in the image of the gen x zine world which mm. said, first thought, best thought, let's get the world, let's get it out there. Maybe we'll be popular, maybe we won't, but we're definitely going to figure out that, uh, I don't know. Uh, the Algos? Sit on a Stranger was a really good album, and we're going to share that information <laughs> to the world. So, Yeah, so anyway, this is uh, obviously not the first or the last word on this uh idea of like what what are we going to do about fair use and how are we going to incentivize content creators when their stuff is just used for training data um it's going to come to a head in various lawsuits uh, yeah. mike huckabee this past week joined the ranks of sarah silverman and others suing uh who is he suing specifically uh he is suing i think he's probably doing open ai but he's, su- he's probably suing everybody <laughs> suing everybody because you know you might as well and but there's needs to be something that uh comes down on this whether it's a law or some kind of industry standard around how these licensing deals uh, need to be worked out and they're going to be complicated because licensing something for training is not the same as licensing content for um uh like 
a, a syndication thing yeah. where, you know, if you treat, all you need to do is train on something once and then you, you have it right. Which is kind of one of these questions I sometimes have with chat GPT. If they already trained it on the New York Times archive, what does it matter that they block it now? Yeah, that's true. I mean, and, but, but, but what they want is fresh content. And if, mm, I think, fair. I think eventually, eventually we're going to get like a copy of a copy kind of situation where all this stuff just kind of like degrades into insanity, which is also dangerous. But anyway, yeah. so speaking of degrading into insanity, we got YouTube announcing standards for synthetic images and like voices right. and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Synthetic videos. So YouTube came out, you know, speaking of standards, they decided that it was time to chime in on what the standard should be for people putting out content that is synthetic, but also realistic. So we, you know, we've talked on this podcast before about AI just becoming software and it already is. I mean, there were sort of AI driven features in Photoshop and Premiere and things like that for a while. Uh, the new generative features are taking it to a new level, but you know, everything was always manipulated to some extent, like mm -hmm. even if it was just color correction and cropping. So they're obviously zeroing in on stuff that is, made to look realistic but isn't so the example uh, for whatever reason comes to mind there was that video remember like it was a few months ago and it was hillary clinton endorsing like ron DeSantis. yeah, yeah. and it was just a deep fake essentially and now that's a good example here because there is in their standards even though uh synthetic content they're going to force creators that upload it to label it as such and uh, when it's duplicating someone's likeness, those people can request it to be taken down. But in cases of satire and parody, they say they may not always take it down. So there's there's a lot of gray area here, mm -hmm. and a lot is still up to YouTube. Because I think the, the 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 Hillary video is actually a good example. Like, would that stay up or take it down? Because it's one of these videos of a certain formula, right? Because yeah. you initially see it. And you're kind of made, you're made to be fooled, even though it's a joke, but you're made to be fooled at first. And then it gets progressively weirder. And then there's a punchline at the end. She says something like hail Hydra. So it's clearly a joke. Yeah. So, you know, is that, is that okay? Well, I mean, well, there's, like, well there's enough, to, there's enough. So especially like in the Hillary Clinton kind of situation, there, there's enough of a chance that somebody's going to sit there and and like cut out the Hail Hydra part, or they're going to make it so they're going to make it so compelling that it's going to be. And and this is a hundred percent going to happen. There's no the 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 idea that 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 YouTube is going to be able to to control for it is mm -hmm. almost is almost ridiculous. Well, definitely not on their platform, but they are yeah. the biggest platform, so they're they're trying to come out and do something. They're I was even try more concerned, yeah. even absent of a, a bad actor who is trying to deceive people like deliberately some people might just not watch to the end, you know, like mm -hmm. of course, as there are. So, and you don't really get the joke until you get at least like halfway through. Cause again, it's getting, it gets progressively weirder. So I don't know, like I, I had a really tough think about this because it's like, do you really need the deep fake level to make that joke? Cause you know, like in back in the day or even currently, like, you, you know, you got college humor or SNL mm -hmm. and people, you just have actors, right? And they're obviously not the person, yeah, you but comedy, you, you you're still com making the joke. Com comedy is always going to exist, but the idea that you can make, uh, if you can make um, complete, like a complete comedy where like the, the parody is so complete that it's like, 
indistinguishable from humanity. That's dangerous. That's the dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. But again, look, all, and I'm and I'm going to say this again. Maybe this is the day when I'm just like maybe I'm soft in the head today. But I think the all this stuff is all this stuff is going to be immaterial in the next two years because we're going to be expecting there, there's going to be a movie made entirely with like I don't know. Christopher Reeve as Superman flying around in the entire move through the whole movie. And mm. it's going to happen and we're going to, we're going to accept it, et cetera. Just, just as the same thing as we accepted uh, of a virtual uh, Anthony Bourdain's voice. You remember that there was like a big outcry because Anthony Bourdain's voice was in the, in the Roadrunner movie. And they just like, they just had him say, they had his like simulated voice, say something that he would have, that he would have autom- uh, said, but you could also make him say right. that like, I don't know. I well, really least- enjoy murder. Yeah, I mean the deep fakes. I, I don't know if they call them a deep fake. I mean, what's the what's the cinematic term for simulating Peter Cushing as Grad Moff Tarkin yeah. in Rogue One, and doing that through the whole movie? Yeah, that's that's a thing that is looks very very possible mm-hmm. um, in the near future. Well, yeah, not, I don't it's not know. Just possible. It's 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 exactly what's going to happen, and we're mm-hmm. just we're just we're we're waiting for that to happen and all of this is just fiddling while uh while media burns. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I would uh, uh I like I guess I might like the takeaway here is that there is there's still so much gray area even on YouTube itself. Like putting aside what what people will take from synthetic content on YouTube and mm-hmm. then manipulate and do whatever like the the sort of parody satire exception, there's going to be so much arguing over it because there's a lot of people who would argue that that sort of Hillary thing was just satire. A lot of people would say like, it's still too dangerous. Uh, YouTube's got some tough standards to w- figure out within those standards. And to your point, it's not going to, certainly not going to match other platforms. So uh, mm-hmm. it looks like on X, for example, Elon Musk, <laughs> clearly just with what he's done with Grok, like he, I think his you know, room for error on satire and parody is probably going to be a little wider. Mm -hmm. Um, Footnote here. So it's not even really a footnote, but it is the important part of these guidelines is they have a sort of separate category of voice duplication for music artists. So if you duplicate Lil Wayne's voice, do a song uh, and, and somehow profit from that, or even just put it out there um, that people can, uh, basically, the artist or can uh, ask for that to be taken down, mm-hmm. and it sounds like there's no exceptions here. They're just going to do it in every case, which kind of seems like the right call, right? I mean, if you are making your living from putting out original music and someone's using your voice to do that uh, in a manipulated way, um, yeah, that just sounds like you're just completely profiting off of what they would do, and this yeah. is exactly what people sue over. So um, I don't know. It's a it's a it's again slippery slope. We are we are entering into a world where ostensibly our opinions on this stuff doesn't matter as well. And like this, like this guy, this guy falling on his sword to quit to quit because of whatever because of um, uh, fair, fair use. use. Uh, the, the 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 mark of a mature man is to live humbly for a cause, while the mark of an immature man is to die nobly for one. Uh, I was, uh, mm. which Mr. Remember that from, uh, from catcher in the rye, literally my favorite quote ever. And, uh, I remember uh, it now. <laughs> yeah. Now you do. I just, I just, uh, I just brought, I just brought it back from the, uh, whatchamacallit from the, from your memory banks. Anyway, 
good, good, good times for everybody. I think everybody's really gonna, everybody's really gonna enjoy this. It's gonna be a great opportunity for everybody well, to just yeah. go completely go nuts. There's gonna be a lot of figuring stuff out for sure. Yep. Um, okay, so let's get to sort of less thorny issues and maybe a little bit of discussion around tools. So Notion introduces Q&A. That is a big headline from this week. So it's a new feature in Notion, which is the note-taking collaboration tool that apparently is super popular with a lot of people, including journalists. But basically, Mm -hmm. this seems to be doing what BARD is supposed to do with your Google Drive data and your Gmail. It's like you can basically ask Notion questions about the stuff you have in Notion, and it's going to find it, summarize it, extrapolate from it if you want. Uh, seems super useful because honestly, <clears throat> like first of all, uh, my shock uh, that a lot of journalists are using Notion. I'm I'm clearly behind the times because mm-hmm. uh, you know I'm of the Evernote and Google Drive generation. The problem with Google Drive though is it's got my whole freaking life in there, and it's you know the shopping lists and stories I wrote. And just dumb notes that I yeah. took down for whatever reason. Whereas I, I would presume people who are using Notion probably have only used it for the last couple of years, probably are only using it for work, I would hope. Or, or it, it, for this tool to work, I think you need to have that sort of clear partition mm-hmm. uh, on on what you're specifically doing for your job. And if, if you know people are using Notion in that way, I think this could be way more useful than Bard. Yeah, I think yeah, you got to teach like again, like I think for so we're we're teaching this class on we're teaching this class on AI market or content creator like it could right. be journalism, could be marketing. And this link sort in of the show thing, notes. Yeah, yeah, hop, yeah, link in the show notes, hire us. Uh we want to fly around the world and tell your tell your people how to use AI before it starts to use them. Um but the uh but I think the goal here is to is to start using our own voices to create content, and that's valuable. I think that's I think that's extremely valuable. The, the content that I'm creating right now, which, which is primarily AI, is a little bit too like dry. I mean, it's perfect for SEO jumbo mumbo jumbo, just like absolute garbage. Uh, but it's not great for it's not great for voice. Um, so this would be helpful. And if I could like ask myself, for example, like, hey, what do I know about? this particular point in my research and it would bring up that information for me. I think that'd be pretty helpful. Do I want to trust, do I want to trust their version of the prompt or their version of the AI? Maybe not. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I guess it sort of depends on uh, the nitty gritty of how it works. I actually don't use notion, so I'm going to have to tap the shoulder of various folks that I know that do and sort of circle back on it. Um, I guess what I would suspect or not necessarily hope for because Google already knows enough about me, but if Bard gets good enough mm-hmm. to know what uh, an article looks like or a piece of work for my work looks like, as opposed to the dumb stuff I was talking about, which is definitely possible with AI. I think as it looks for patterns in my documents and stuff, it should be able to figure that out to some extent. Um, so maybe Bard gets good enough to to do that and i don't have to sort of switch my workflow to notion because i i'm i'm not super thrilled about doing another tool mm-hmm. but again at some point you know chat gpt is just going to be plugged into everything uh at least that seems to be sam altman's plan so mm-hmm. just ask the a uh the 
the AGE. What is it again? <laughs> AGI. AGI. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we await that dark future. Um, okay. Speaking of various models and the, their propensity to get things right or wrong. Um, so there's been a, a couple studies lately and one of them was on which AI models hallucinate the most. Mm-hmm. So this is obviously a huge issue with regard to journalism that, these AIs, you know, constantly, uh, not constantly, but there's a, always a risk. No, constantly. It's constant. It's, <laughs> it's constant. You have to be, you have to, you have to, we can't, we can't mince words about this. This is like, yeah. it's like trusting the, it's like trusting your dog to like, uh, to, to park your RV for you. I mean, maybe they could figure it out, but they're not going to be so great at it, uh, for, for a while. So you got to, we really got to have to figure out how, uh, we have to figure out how to, how to route around the potential damage. So they ranked the models by which is the most propensity to hallucinate. Mm -hmm. So uh, it turns out uh, GPT-4 is at the top of the leaderboard at only a 3% hallucination. Yeah. Followed closely by GPT-3.5 at 3.5%. Then all the llamas are hovering around 5 or 6%. Cohere is next. Then Anthropics Claude. All the way at the bottom is Google Palm and Google Palm Chat. So Google Palm is at 12.1%. Palm Chat is at uh, abysmal 27.2%. Mm-hmm. So 30% of the time, uh, Palm Chat will just make up shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, you know, interesting. Honestly, these are a little lower than I thought they'd be. But it is one of those things where it's like, okay, Three percent sounds good. In other words, it's ninety-seven percent accurate. Mm-hmm. But it also means three percent of the time uh, is still bad because you need need to be right a hundred percent of the time in journalism. Yeah. And you know, there's always you're always going to need some kind of human in the loop, particularly for you know knowledge tasks when it's actually going into its training data and telling you facts. Yeah, this is the hardest. This is the hardest thing for us right now because we're 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 depending on this stuff. And this is, this is why there's no, a, there's no, uh, actual like dri- self-driving cars. Cause if you think about like the self-driving car, yeah. I think the, I think the, the level f- f- one standard, we'll have five standards or so whatever this level yeah. is, is that you have to be like 99.9999% uh, like, like self-driving and yeah. it just gets to drive around. But you remember there's a 0.00001 chance that the car is going to swerve off and hit a, hit a, Wendy's or whatever. And that 0.001% chance translates out to like one every five miles or something like that. So, <laughs> so when, so when people talk about cars this, on the road, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So depend, when people talk about this thing, it's, it's crazy dangerous, just crazy dangerous anyway. Yeah. So again, and there was the other study that I mentioned, which Stanford and UNC could actually reduce llama to hallucinations of up to 58%, which is great, I guess, if you are competing with ChatGPT and that actually going by these scores, that would put, make them the most accurate, but still at 2% uh, failure rate, um, it's probably still worse than your average human journalist, um, at least a good chunk of the time. I don't know. I mean, not like humans are perfect, but at least there's usually an editor checking it and that can, you have some idea of like where you went wrong. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, an AI gener- 
you know, have, has no clue because it just doesn't know what it's saying. Anyway, we'll all, uh, I guess we just have to survive, uh, the next, uh, next two or three years. And then once we pop out the other end, we'll be, uh, we'll be, we'll be beholden to the mod, the robots anyway. So it really won't matter. Yeah. We'll all have our, you know, inputs, uh, in the back yeah. of our neck to the collective yeah. and, you know, all hail. Uh, would, would you, would you prefer a Borg? Robot. Would you prefer a Borg kind of situation or would you prefer a matrix kind of situation? Would you want to be a battery or do you want to be like a, or do you want to do a little bit of work? I'd prefer the Borg because I don't want my muscles to atrophy. And I mean, look, Neo was well. I guess he wasn't too. He wasn't. He was a little bit weak, but uh, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, yeah, I think having like a cool laser eye or whatever, and always having the opportunity to have like Janeway, like like take you in and take take all the stuff off your body, that would be pretty cool right. too. It seems like all you need is just some surgery, and then you just got one Borg implant over your eye, and you're good to go. Yeah, so, I guess that's all right. good. All right, so that's so so. It's, I think I, we, should, we should we should put a vote to our listeners. What do you prefer? You wouldn't be in the Matrix, or do you want to do you want to be trapped in the Matrix where you're trapped in 1997, 1988, which actually would be pretty pleasant because I mean, look, Interpol was just getting popular. Uh, uh, white stripes. We could have. Hmm. could. Uh, we could use our Sony Vios and just uh, just and just uh, do some web design. That was the last time a person like us who knows a little bit about journalism, a little about, about, about web design could like make a blog and like be really success, successful. So the um, well, very last time. Well, you, guys, listeners, you can be successful. <laughs> Submit to us your decision on the Borg Versus matrix it. question and do it in the form of a generative image. Go ahead. Just send it. Yes. Right. Yeah. That'd be All cool. right. Time to go to the conversation. I am excited today to welcome to the Media Copilot podcast, Brennan Woodruff. Brennan is the co-founder and chief business officer of GoCharlie, one of many services that uses generative AI to create marketing copy and other material. But what I found interesting about GoCharlie is that it's not powered by GPT-4 or Llama or any other model you may have heard of because the company has trained its own model, which is pretty rare. Uh, I met Brennan at New York Tech Week last month. I thought he had some uh, uniquely realistic perspectives on Gen AI and the whole space. And I wanted to go deeper with him about GoCharlie, marketing AIs, and why the company decided to do its own model. So welcome to the Media Copilot, Brennan. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, It's it's so amazing to see that the Tech Week uh, event turned into these conversations. So really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Talked to a lot of people that week and uh, just got so many different uh, interesting perspectives on what's been happening and what will happen. And a lot has even happened since then. That was a whole month ago. It's <laughs> uh, like, so we're going to get into that. But first, uh, for people that may not know, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like you're a startup founder in the space. And surprisingly, you're over, I, I assume you're over 30. Um, so, uh, seems like you're a veteran of just the startup scene and the AI scene. Tell me, uh, tell me where you came from and how you ended up founding GoCharlie. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give a bit of a longer form because it, apparently people find my career interesting. Uh, I found it like pretty cool, but like, you know, it, it's an interesting perspective that kind of got me here and it, it wasn't as connected as what everybody thinks. I think looking back, everybody always presumes that everyone everything was connected, but I'm actually from a small town in Indiana, Evansville, Indiana. Um, if you're familiar, Whirlpool used to have their global headquarters there. Uh, but oh. pretty much the only claim to fame we have is the coolest Evansville purple aces, uh, their riverboat gambler mascot. 
Uh, Don Mattingly went to my high school, so Donnie Baseball for you MLB fans out there. And then, of course, I'm from there. So I went to Indiana <laughs> University, got my MBA and bachelor's all at once, uh, went to KPMG's deal advisory group right out of college, was doing cross-border M&A there, uh, decided that didn't want that lifestyle, took a very long UberX out to San Francisco and joined <laughs> Uber's product finance team. So we launched bikes, scooters, self-driving, self-flying uh, and helped them IPO. Thought that wasn't chaotic enough, decided to jump over to a little outfit called SoftBank uh, and their vision fund, which was a $100 billion first fund and around a $60 billion second fund, uh, was there for two years and then decided that the fund was happening at the portfolio company level. So met two okay. AI PhDs and jumped over full time into uh, GoCharlie. And that's where this, this AI puppy that you all know and love uh, came from. All right. Wow. That, that, that was the long version. I feel like you just did summarize so much in, in a very short period, but um, yeah. good stuff. So <laughs> what, uh, what drew you to, I mean, everything's pivoting to AI, right? Um, but I guess when you founded GoCharlie, what did you think that you had that, you know, made the, made that idea better than, uh, you know, sticking around where you were or doing something else? And have you has that sort of come to fruition with the final product, or I guess yeah. it's not the final product, but the product as it is today? So, so for me, I think there was like a unique individual aspect, and there was also a luck aspect to it for sure. Mm. Um, at the time, I I was thinking about leaving SoftBank uh, and starting my own outfit, and my original idea was going to be a uh, an NFT music platform with a like a fan engagement crypto spin. Uh, remains oh, to be like that was conceived in 2021. Yes, yes, the <laughs> Royal.io model, but like some fun, like make your own cryptocurrency as a celebrity with some like crowdfunding Kickstarter aspect for musicians. Really cool, but like would have been very hard. I uh, ran into money mm-hmm. transmission laws. Um, so for me, I, I knew I wanted to go super early because I wanted to bring something to life. I hadn't had that experience. I'd worked at big companies. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that going back, I would have thought that I wanted to go this early again, but we'll put that to the side. Uh, but for me, it was, I knew I had to go early because I wanted to get out of pure finance and I wanted to focus on sales and business development. And I definitely got that experience. But the other part of it was I saw that generative AI was a new paradigm. Um, and I'm not sure that I knew it to the extent that I know it now back then, but I knew that this there was something special here. Because we were starting to think about an entirely new way that you interact with software, an entirely new relationship that you had with software that I think we've been building towards for a long time, but now it's actually coming to life. Um, It's weird, but that's honestly the benefit that I think about with generative AI is it's technology coming to life. It's not this like robotic process automation that we had seen in the past. Don't get me wrong. That has a ton of Mm -hmm. beautiful enterprise value. But it's not as cool. It's not as it's not as thought provoking because it makes you like generative AI makes you think about what does it mean to be human. Like, how do you think about instilling rules and systems into this thing? How do you make sure that the reflection of us in this technology is actually the proper reflection, or more importantly, is the reflection we want to see? So that's Mm -hmm. that's kind of the tricky part. And so for me, there was all these interesting questions. And I felt like it was a space that was about to take off. And so that's when I ultimately decided uh, to join. 
it, I mean, it helps that uh, we were in it early, but I've mm-hmm. also found that most people think that AI is just chat GPT now, which is also a fun question right. hill to climb. Yeah, that's good. So early, you say early, what's early for gen AI? I mean, just, is there, I feel like there's two eras yeah. pre chat GPT and post chat GPT. Yes. So is, is early anything before roughly a year ago? I would say for most people, that's probably the barometer. Uh, I, we were in this in, we were playing around with ideas of this back early 2020, but mm-hmm. open AI was started back in like 2016. Right, so they're, right, right. they're about, sure. they're, they were much more into it. And there's people doing generative stuff before that. It's just like, the transformer paper didn't exist till 2017. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I would say super early generative AI was like 2017. Uh, Cause that's when large language models, transformer paper, all that sort of fun started cohere came out of it. Open AI started expanding into that. Uh, so I would say we were mid early, but like mm-hmm. definitely pre chat GPT and definitely were around when GPT two was kind of a thing. And now we're on GPT right. four, potentially beyond. Right. When these models were mostly very, I don't know, I guess reclusive might be the word, but it is like they were around. They just people didn't really know about them because there wasn't a uh, regular people anyway, uh, because there wasn't a very public uh, product that anyone could access. Um, So tell me about um, GoCharlie, the product. And like, you know, I described it as generative AI that generates marketing copy and other material. Um, I'm, I'm sure you probably think that description is inadequate for what this thing is powerful, the power of it and what it can do. But tell me like what this uh, product is today, but also like what is the vision, right? Because obviously it's very early days in terms of what, you've, um, what you're building towards. Um, what, what are you building towards? So what, let me maybe reflect that question back before I answer it. Mm-hmm. What like, when you think about AI, what do you think AI should be capable of doing? AI should be capable of simulating uh, human ability and decision-making processes um, and uh, building, I guess, content that's sort of into the ability uh, in, in such a way that uh, it's passable. Uh, it's passably human-like, if not necessarily and altogether human. Yeah. It, so I, I think that's, I think you've shared a response that I would expect many people hold is like, we expect mm-hmm. it to be able to do the things that we do. Right. Mm-hmm. Like right. we're kind of in this era right now of AI has been bastardized into another software as a service. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty simple. <laughs> like not, not to like say anything bad. Like it's perfectly fine that it's that way, but OpenAI, their intelligence as a service, that was where they started out with an API. And then you had to build an interface on top of it. And I think as mm-hmm. you see them marching down their, their path, it's more about how do we make it less and less a developer experience and more more a, a, a every person experience. Mm-hmm. And so when I thought about AI, I also thought that way. I was like, we want something that is effectively our digital twin that does stuff for us. We don't want something that we have to learn how to talk to like mm-hmm. we just want it to know us and do the things that we would normally do so that we don't have to do them. Uh, plain and simple. Yeah, that sounds and, right. And so let's bring that back to the Go Charlie part, right? So what we're doing right now is we focused on content creation. Now, content creation is intentionally broad. Now, from a marketing perspective, you have to have a little bit more of a narrowed message. And so we're seeing mm-hmm. marketing is kind of that beachhead because 
who needs the most content of anyone? It's marketers and salespeople. Those, those are the two. And right. so we focus on marketing where it's like creating content to tell your story across a bunch of different platforms uh, without having to do a whole bunch of different maneuvering. The AI knows how to talk on each platform. It knows how to resonate with audiences. It knows how to take your inputs and turn them into the types of content that you need. So we started with this content creation platform and effectively introduced like 10 different AI models that can start from anywhere. So we call this ingest anything. So you can start with a video, images, text, websites, uh, you name it. You can start from there and you can create anything text or image based out of that. Mm -hmm. So where our tool is going to be a lot different than others is you have multiple input, multiple outputs. So you can use uh, 10 links, an attached file, uh, your brand voice, and uh, create 10 posts, 10 blogs, five emails, all about that same subject. So we're giving you the ultimate flexibility and the ultimate productivity hack. What used mm -hmm. to it, it used to take me a month to write all of our marketing content. I can now do it in a single prompt. So nice. why content creation, right? Because that's inherently, I think, where a lot of people go with this because there's so many content mm -hmm. creation tools. Sure. There's so many types of content. And so where that's setting us up from a vision perspective is we've built something called a cognitive agent. So cognitive agent, very fancy word for AI brain, which is also a very scary word. But basically we're building that intelligence, that human-like expectation that you and I have as a baseline for AI, where it can reason. It can determine what tasks and tools are necessary to get to where you want to go. So for us right now, that looks like create all of this marketing content but where it's mm -hmm. going is i want i have this idea for a business can you help me build it can you help me create all the content necessary to stand up this business and then to create the assets to ultimately operate that business and then link in with the tooling necessary to be able to manage my business the the this is a sound bite for anyone here but i, I kind of view it as First, AI is going to be the operating system for your business, and then mm -hmm. it's going to be the operator of your business. So longer term, we've built this purposely broad content creation tool because you're going to need all those different types of content to operate a business long term. So that's our vision long term is an AI that operates your business or our catchphrase for it, just make your life easier with AI. Wow. Interesting. So that, that I think is a good springboard to sort of answering sort of the natural question I teed up with the intro, which is yeah. that why, why do your own model? Um, because it sounds like there's probably pragmatic reasons to do so just in terms of the output that you're getting, but also like a very long-term business reasons to do it. Yeah. Um, so that you have some, uh, something you really own and, and can differentiate with. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely part of it. So, for any of any people that want to be AI entrepreneurs, um, if you're planning to be a venture backable startup, you're going to have to own your own IP. I, mm -hmm. it, it's classic. Every open AI release, everybody's like, oh, so many startups got killed. Those startups don't die overnight. But what they're really saying is their long term prospects have been increasingly narrowed, if not. Mm -hmm. Secondly, open AI actually throttles you over a certain amount of traffic. So right, we started right. with them as a prototyping agent. And then we were like, all right, we got to build our own stuff. Third, it's really hard to build these models. So less competition mm -hmm. if you actually can build them. And then fourth is, is what you were mentioning is like, we want to build models that are specific to the needs of the task at hand. 
So a prime example of this, for those that don't know, is that GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters. But the actual amount of parameters being used for the API was 3 billion parameters. And the majority mm. of that traffic was for SEO, for blogs, for social media content. There right. was no coding in GPT-3. It was all content, all text-based copywriting, all those use cases. And so what we effectively did initially was we built a 3 billion parameter model that did all of those tasks. So now your inference is a 3 billion parameter model versus a 175 billion parameter model. You shouldn't have mm -hmm. to bring a rocket ship to jump five feet. You don't need a rocket right. to jump five feet. You just need to be able to jump. Well, I might need a rocket because my vertical jump sucks, but that's a separate story. <laughs> but it that's where we're kind of getting is multiple models working together, we believe is the future. And to do that, you need to build your own models so that you understand how the models can interact. Mm. And then the agent is the connective tissue. We also wanted to disprove that you needed hundreds of millions of dollars to actually build something of value. Mm. You don't. We built something for less than $50,000 and it performs at or above most of the state-of-the-art models for the specific domains that we build them for. So I think that's where the future is going to go, domain-specific solutions. So given all that, like, why not, why not open source? Is it, is it uh, still sort of the cost question and sort of the not being able to own it question? Uh, why, why wasn't that a, a route to go? Yeah, so I don't, think we've, I don't think we've explicitly ruled out open source. Mm -hmm. um, the agent is built in such a way that it can interact with any model. So let's I say see. that like someone comes out of nowhere and just builds the best model of all time and it's got all the bells and whistles and it's open source to everybody. Well, most people still don't know how to interact with a model. So you're still going to have to have a UI UX. And so that's why we built the agent flexible enough to where it could incorporate those open source things. Um, I think more of the world is based on open source than people realize. So uh, this was something I had to get over the hurdle of. Like I thought that everyone was using proprietary software that they built. But actually, it's a lot of open source frameworks stitched together from a bunch of different mm -hmm. labs, a bunch of different code repos. Um, so we do take different architectures or different learnings from open source research projects and pull that into our own model. But we still, at the core of it, make it our own. Um, there is some discussion that we've had internally about it as a risk mitigation factor. So like many enterprises don't want to work with startups if they don't think that they'll be there for a while. And so an open mm -hmm. source model allows them to have a, another provider come in and mess with the tooling if they need to. But for us, it, it's important for us to own our IP uh, we want to be viewed as an AI company, not an AI-enabled company. Uh, and so that's ultimately what drove us to to going this route. So you talked a lot about the, you know, the, the amount of copy this thing can do and the different things it can ingest and then uh, create for you. Um, how do you deal with hallucinations? How do you deal with the aspect of AI that seems inherent just because it's this statistical way of uh, predicting things that every now and then it's going to get something wrong. Um, and what, what guidance do you give to your users based around that? Yeah. Hallucinations is, a, is an interesting one. Um, so I, I'm curious, like how often do you feel like you say something and it might not be true? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, as a journalist, I'm reluctant to answer. I feel like I need to prove the fifth, but I, I will. I may have wandered into uh, a accidental 
assumption uh, occasionally. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't really say how often, but it's happened. See, I, I feel that that's great. I wanted to ask you this because journalist perspective is, is fantastic here. But I would argue that journalists probably have the best safeguards for hallucinations as, as mm. human professionals because they research, they, they look things up, they try to verify sources, right? It's no yeah, different. And than I, would, like- I would add to that there's a framework that you're supposed to get either through journalism school or through good editors that it, it's, it's sort of the way of thinking around uh, facts when you're when you're talking about whether whether you're writing it up or you're talking about it you just you kind of have to think in your head sometimes in real time do I do I have this solid and then choose your words carefully uh, journalists tend to be pretty good at that mm. <clears throat> hold that exact thought because that's super interesting that you said that right mm. so let's let's think about this so hallucinations for those on uh, that are listening that don't know what they are. It's not like the AI is taking LSD. It's it's. There's two <laughs> reasons for hallucinations. One is that uh, the training data uh, cutoff was at a specific date, and so anything that happened after that date is not going to be incorporated in the model because these models can also be thought of as like super compression engines, basically taking everything ever written in mm-hmm. human language and compressing it down. So if it was trained in 2021, anything from 21 to now isn't going to be re- isn't going to be represented. So it might make a good guess, but if facts have changed, it's not going to incorporate it. The second is the reason that hallucinations will never be solved, at least in an LLM architecture, which is these models do not know what they are saying, and they're really good at pretending like they know what they're saying. They're they're like a BCG consultant, where they <laughs> no, sorry for the BCG listen listeners, but it, they, they sound really good about saying what they're saying, but it's not right. actually right. Or BCG stands for? Uh, Boston Consulting Group, one of I the three it. big consulting firms. I hope that doesn't ruin a future partnership that I want to do. But uh, <laughs> I was a consultant at one point, and oftentimes I was talking about things that I shouldn't have been talking about because I didn't know. But that's what these language models are. Like They don't know true or false. They don't know what biology is. They don't know what chemistry is. How they understand it is funny enough, how we understand things. We see a, a concept a bunch of times and we make assumptions to c- try to connect ideas. Ultimately, they're doing that mathematically with a statistical distribution and then predicting the next word. So they don't actually know what they're saying. So those being the two reasons for hallucina- hallucinations, there's a couple different ways that you can solve those two. And then I'm going to introduce the third one, which is actually taking AI to journalism school. So the first is that you connect these models with the web. Now. Mm. Think about it. Not everything we read on the internet is actually true. So does it really eliminate hallucinations? Probably not. But it, it at least gives you points of validation that you can reference. Right. So that's at why we link Charlie. At least in the case of misinformation out there, it's not attributable to an AI kind of guessing. It's just kind of being fooled like the rest of us are being fooled. Which exactly. Which is more understandable, at least. Exactly. And then the second one is, is training data. So if you incorporate that web that web search capability, that that can help solve that. You're never going to solve the model not knowing what it's talking about, at yeah. least with LOMs. So that's one of the reasons that we built the agent on top. Uh, or uh, what many people don't know is the original GPT-4, when it came out, it was actually eight models talking to one another. So mm. the best way to try to eliminate hallucina- hallucinations is making sure that you have like a uh, retrieval augmented generation system, a RAG system that has data about what you want to talk about making sure that you have a domain-specific model so there's less for it to consider. It only considers the domain that it needs to for the task. 
Uh, and then third is having multiple models acting as a verifier uh, model. So like basically you have a generator model, you have a grading model, and then you have like a, a checking model. So not so different from like a worker plus a reviewer plus an ultimate distributor. That's the best way you can try to solve hallucinations. But what we've tried to do is introduce the agent on top, which is kind of similar to that last piece. Uh, so that's effectively taking an AI to journalism school uh, to learn the framework of what is real or what process it should go through to verify that something is in fact real. Is it always going to be perfect? No, but it at least has a process to minimize making stuff up as much as possible. It's incredibly interesting when you think about human in the loop for a lot of these AI solutions, right? Because most people say eliminate hallucinations by having someone review. If the person reviewing doesn't know the topic any better than the AI, then who's to say who's right and who's wrong? So Yeah, and we, we definitely saw that with the early attempts by some publications. Uh, uh, won't name them in, <laughs> in this podcast, but anyone can look them up, which uh, they did have humans reviewing it, but it was like junior editors who just weren't really, you know, veterans in it. And that's, I, I've talked with this about a few people that the reporter co-pilot vision or, or human in the loop vision for, uh, if, if in fact there is such a thing that sort of becomes a standard in journalism would need a sort of subject matter expert at the helm to really sort of guard against that kind of thing, because human in the loop, it's gotta be the right human. Uh, so that's a very good point. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a bull case for human workers still having jobs. Yeah, for sure. So this sort of segues nicely into what I, some, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the ethics of using AI, which I feel like are sort of still being figured out, but still, but being figured out at a rapid pace. I've, early on, like I said, I alluded to the whole um, sort of uh, questionable use cases of either putting stuff up without review or with being reviewed by the wrong person, um, disclosure. It seems to be a big thing now, particularly with imagery. Um, curious, like where you land on this, where, where uh, you know, there's a difference between marketing copy, I feel like, and obviously the journalistic use case where probably one needs more disclosure than another. Um, but is it, do you have a perspective on this or are you more like, hey, I just make the tool, man. And it's like, you know, it's up to people to use it the correct way or, or smart people to sort of figure out if it's... Um, how, how to possibly, how to use it properly and disclose it to readers properly. Yeah. Ethics is, ethics is probably the most asked about question in any AI thing that I do. And is the only time that I've ever seen people question the ethics of software, mm -hmm. which is so interesting. Uh, well, it's, I mean, in fairness, it's, it's a, human decision-making simulation and in yes. human decision-making there are ethics. So yeah. I, I can see why it gets brought up in this particular area of software and not in other, perhaps other areas. Exactly. No, I, I, I completely agree. I, th I think it should be a part of this discussion and is why I'm not the, Hey, I, I just build the tool and like you go figure it out. <laughs> right. Um, I will say at the beginning of this journey, I definitely, I definitely sat there and said, Hey, I'm just building the tool. I don't care about ethics. Um, but it became more and more apparent to me. My, my motivations for building this product initially were to give my parents who operate relationship-driven entrepreneurial pursuits uh, a tool to have a digital presence. And that's like powered me through uh, the early days of this. And then as I started to think about it more and more and the AI capabilities got more and more capable, I realized there is going to be a fall-off. 
Um, I'm a, I'm a very high performing, high effort person, but I've realized that they're not people like that. Not everyone is like that. Not everyone derives a lot of their purpose from work. Um, not everyone derives, uh, their entire life by the impact that they make in the world. Some people just want to live and that's their life and that's their impact and that's totally okay. But if I zoom that back into what I'm doing, there are going to be people that get replaced by AI because the mm. it's, it's going to raise the floor. And anyone that was above that floor is likely going to have to reskill or find new jobs. Um, that's the ethics that I really think about. The disclosure part, I think I'm a bit jaded on the disclosure part because mm-hmm. on the one hand, I, I believe that people should understand when they're being sold to. I think social media platforms did a good job saying like, this is an ad makes sense but i think that just makes people be sponsored content people and you don't know that it's an ad or it makes people be affiliates where you don't know that it's an ad mm. and so it just spawns other things but then also there's been ghost writers most companies have their own agencies that are creating stuff that they didn't create so i kind of fall on the end of like i think the ethics of disclosure they've already we've already kind of dealt with them and already said as a society that like, it doesn't matter who creates it as long as I'm posting it. So I don't mm-hmm. really believe in the disclosure part as much mm-hmm. um, as other people might on the ethics side. I fall on the side of if, is does this have the intended impact that I want? Is this a net good in the world? Um, mm-hmm. I do think we'll get to a place, especially when it pertains to video AI and image AI where there right. will be disclosure but I don't think they're going to ever be able to actually track it with certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do, I don't lean on the side of full disclosure as it pertains to text content, but I do think in the video and image side, we're going to have to get there some way. Yeah. It's a definitely a, a thorny issue and definitely changes a lot with the medium. So like I, I have this ongoing discussion with my friend, John Biggs about disclosure because I, I actually authored the, um, guidelines for Coindesk, uh, yeah. how they were using AI and disclosure transparency was definitely prominent in those uh, disclosures. But at the same time, AI is ultimately a tool and there will come a time, I feel like, where the tool is just in the air and it's just in the same way you might have disclosed in the 90s, this was created via word processor. <laughs> like it's just be like, that's just what we use, you know, like the, like, would you disclose, uh, this, this was edited in Photoshop, you know, or, and we, we change like in the case of an image and, um, and what, and, you know, I think, I think in terms of imagery, I wouldn't say we necessarily have a good sense of where to disclose all the time, but it is like the, the deliberate attempt to mislead is sort of exists, which is with text. You kind of, it's, it's, a slightly different um, thing you're disclosing, which is like kind of like there could be an error here almost. And uh, yeah. also I didn't necessarily create these words and in and, and journalism, the instinct, and it's a good instinct is always to attribute if you yeah. didn't, if, if those aren't your thoughts, right. That's a good instinct to have. But again, it's with this new thing where, well, it's a tool. And at some point when everyone's using AI to summarize stuff for them and maybe copying a few of those words over, do you really need to disclose that? I mean, you already probably don't with social copy, certainly and headlines and whatever yeah. else. So I feel like that line is rapidly becoming a gray area and it's rapidly moving at the same time. Yeah. It, 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 that's, oh man, it's so great that you, it, cause 
there's a there's another person that I met at New York Tech Week at a different event. Sorry, I was cheating on you with multiple. <laughs> events, but, um, okay. There, so this guy's name is uh, Ian Thomas, and he actually wrote the one of the first books co-authored by GPT three. So he he basically shaped GPT three and mm-hmm. asked it all the fundamental questions of like what does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to have a life well spent? All that stuff. And GPT-3 is noted as a co-author. Hmm. And I thought that was such an interesting concept. But as you said, like, maybe that's just a novelty thing in the beginning. Rita Hoffman did yeah. the same thing with GPT-4. And then eventually it's like, well, everybody's just writing with AI. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think like, yes, it's an interesting question for disclosure. But I think the more interesting question becomes like, how does the role of an author evolve in the presence yeah. of such a technology? Um that that's where I spend a lot more of my mental capacity, but it's definitely an interesting. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's evolving rapidly. So just to switch gears a bit, speaking of rapidly, so since since we last chatted, uh, there's been a lot a lot of stuff announced, but the biggest stuff was probably an OpenAI's uh, Developer Week or Dev Day. Yeah, and there was a lot of stuff they talked about, and we can go into a bunch if you want to. But the main thing I wanted to ask you about is the GPTs and the GPT store that's apparently coming very very soon. It seems like everyone's going to the app store model as a, a corollary, and I, myself included, I've written about this. And um, I, I wanted to just feel get your sense of this because it feels like that's a little bit of like where they want it to go because maybe this is a way to either mainstream the technology, um, show that there can be some revenue attached, and also like uh, if it gets successful. Um, make G- OpenAI a platform. But I don't know. There's a lot of different perspectives in this. I just kind of want to get your thoughts. Like OpenAI seems to be platforming or turning GPTs into a platform and appifying the whole idea. What does that mean for the future? And what does it mean for folks like you who've done work to, well, you know, your company's worked hard to create its own model and do its own thing. I assume there probably won't be a Go Charlie GPT because that just doesn't make any sense because but it's like what what do you uh what do you see as sort of the future of this i don't know i mean having a bunch of charlies that are ai puppies and having your own puppy litter that i i that branding kind of sells um <laughs> not giving any hints of our future roadmap but that uh it's interesting uh, so unfortunately i was in mexico city for my first vacation since we started uh right. when dev day <laughs> happened so i was a couple mouths or bites deep into some uh amazing al pastor tacos when dev day was happening um so i haven't played around with gpts as much as i would like uh but i think what's interesting to me is what it says about Mm. the technology so on the one hand it tells me that like text generation quality is plateauing uh and they realize that and so the next model can't just be a text model it's going to have to be multimodal uh, which we have a multimodal model in flight and is planned to be done next month. So we'll see who gets there first. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, what I love about it is it's a genius data acquisition strategy. Right. Yeah. It's, that's what everybody keeps forgetting is like OpenAI started as an API and J- Jasper built a billion dollar business off of it. And then they rolled Jasper with chat GPT uh, and Jasper couldn't charge the prices it could. It had to lay off people. People realized that they weren't doing anything special on top of it, that they could just do it all in ChatGPT. And 
what was ChatGBT? Yes, it was their first app product, but it was another data acquisition strategy to get more data to power this AGI model that they're trying mm-hmm. to build right. with more and more dog food. And so I think GPTs is the most genius data acquisition strategy I've ever seen because you're going to make money off of people giving you their data to ultimately build some tool that they can then make money off of and you make money off of. I think what every AI tool struggles with right now is that it's nice to have. It's not making people money. Hmm. And they're like, well, we don't want to get into the automation game because that's kind of what Zapier does and they're a big partner of ours. So their solution is let's just make a whole bunch of little versions of our tool and everybody can be an AI developer. So that's what I really like about it. They basically went from devs as their customers to now everyone can be a dev. Anyone can stand up a GPT, which is really cool. What I love about that as well is that in the future, if we've replaced most white collar jobs with AI, you're going to have to have a way for people to operate businesses or make money and benefit Mm. from this technology. So I think as far as it pertains to their AGI strategy, it's a genius way to do it. Uh, Do I think it's going to work out as well as the app store? No, I I kind of view it more as a cloud model uh, where you can build and deploy on their platform, but they're going to make money off of you training on their platform, which is your chat GPT subscription. And then they're also going to make money off of people using your product and just send you back a rev share. So it's more akin to a cloud model, I think, than it is to an Mm. app store per se, but it does allow everyone to feel like they are now an AI entrepreneur, which I love. Now, what does it mean for us, right? So there's a couple different paths. One is that we build our own and we have a Charlie (laughs) Charlie store, uh, which I would love to do because ultimately, what are we trying to do long-term? An AI that operates your business. What better than an AI that can literally have the business on our platform. You don't have to do any of the dev work and you just build it. It's kind of the genius of a Shopify, right? That's, Mm -hmm. I thought that would be super interesting. Uh, It also means that we can't just do basic stuff. Like there has to be some differentiation, which lends to creating your own model. Because if everybody's using the same model, then the only way to be different is use a different model. Um, And then third for us, it puts the pressure on us to make sure that we're delivering value to our customers and that they can actually make money with us. Because if I'm a content creation tool, but they could stand up a content creation tool that makes them money, they're going to choose the second one every time. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that we started building into our vision several months ago was how do we make money with this tool that we're building for people such that they're paying a fee, but they're making so much more on the back end of it that they don't really care about what they're paying us. That's really interesting. Yeah. The one thing I think we... Uh, leaving out there other than your customers is sort of the user and how how I feel like whether it's your tool or uh, or your version of the app store or their version of the app store did did anyone even ask for apps here you know like I feel I feel that ultimately if having a half dozen or even you know a few different GPT I mean right now I sort of negotiate a few different apps in my daily work apps gpt like tools for ai but i'm I'm also like i would consider you know in terms of the world a power user i think most people just want like just do the thing for me so maybe like i feel like this is also going to create sort of a market for um what i don't know what the term for this is but like 
a, a Uber agent or something that sort of knows which GPT or tool you want from the initial query and then goes out and gets it. Maybe that's ultimately what chat GPT ends up being, but um, the simplification, I, I feel like it's good. Everything's going to, this is encouraging a, a fragmentization, which will then need sort of some, uh, some coordination. Yeah. It, so funny you said that that's exactly the agent that we built It's basically mm. a deterministic way of picking the right model or the right tooling to be able to complete the task at hand. But more importantly, I think you also highlighted the thing that no one's saying, but is where it's going, is that eventually ChatGPT will just take all of these GPTs that you've made and ultimately call them, and they'll figure out a way to do attribution. Why that's interesting is that you couldn't do it with LLMs. So I actually thought about building a Spotify model where people would willingly contribute their data, and then they'd participate in the backend things. But that's never going to be profitable, and the observability is not there. But if you know that you're specifically calling a certain GPT, that gets interesting. Mm. And then you can attribute money to whoever built that GPT. And then more importantly, you can actually engineer which GPT gets used and have people pay to get priority for their GPT. Almost like you're reinventing Google right. paid ads yeah. Yeah, yeah, by totally. making their GPTs be prioritized. And so you'll make money off of that. Um, so I think it's, it's a super interesting play. I agree with you. No one's going to want to figure out the GPT. It also highlights a point we made earlier, right? Like no one wants to come and learn how to use an AI. They just want the AI to do the thing. They're willing to do some initial setup costs, but they don't want to have to play prompt Mm -hmm. engineer. They would rather just come and then tell the thing. And then maybe you get an email at the beginning of the week saying, this is your content for the week. Here you go. You can make Mm -hmm. edits if you want. So I think that's where AI is going to go. I think open AI with chat GPT pushed a lot of people into automation And then with the GPT store, it's going to push a lot of people into facilitating and orchestrating. Nice. Um, So shifting gears a little bit, just sort of the, or even more like taking back, taking a step back on this whole thing. So definitely getting your perspective as both uh, sort of a startup guy, a guy who thinks about the product, guy who thinks about the business, guy who thinks about the space. It just feels like we're, we've been at peak hype on a on AI and generative AI for months now, and it just seems to be going up and up and up. And I, I, I guess, given everything we did, we talked about, like, where do you see? How do you see that ending? Right, and that I feel like uh, this question I ask a lot of people, but I also feel like it's becoming this question of, do you see it ending in fire or in ice? Which is to say, does the does the hype crash? Is there a crash? And there's a massive sort of re- correction that, and realization maybe that AI hasn't quite delivered to what, what it's supposed to sometime in the next six months to a year. And the, the industry sort of recovers from that in the way it's sort of the original dot-com bubble burst. Or is it ice, which is to say like either it, gr- it gradually, the hype dot, dot falls off and it just gets built into everything. Um, and slowly but surely AI is just something we breathe or some other alternative. I don't know. But I feel like this hype can't continue. We can't be talking about AI in the same way, you know, six months and 12 months from now. I feel like we're going to move on to some ver- some part of AI or something else and AI just becomes this thing we, we had or still have. It's a fascinating question to think about because I think it's unprecedented what we're dealing with. Um, 
there's so many things going on at once. So let's think about what causes a hype cycle, right? First Mm. is you have something groundbreaking or something that's attention grabbing or something that's so out there that many people collectively think about it. But we also have a couple macro events that I think are contributing to this, which is a lot of people getting laid off Mm. and you have the creator economy and creator style livelihoods becoming more and more relevant, especially during and post pandemic. And so you have a ton of accounts where all they do is just talk about updates and AI. And so that's why we have this huge hype cycle now is everybody's just making money off of the engagement about AI. You can just make money by talking about AI on Twitter or on LinkedIn or on Facebook, and you get people to pay you to talk about AI. And so it's this self-propelling hype cycle. So I think generally hype cycles will last longer uh, than they used to. Um, I also think that the crash of crypto contributed to this. Hmm. I think that we got a long time before we get to ice for this hype cycle. Mm -hmm. I think people are starting to get sick about hearing about AI. And I think that's one of the reasons that the GPT store got stood up is instead of prompts, people want to see cool tools and everybody will share those. I do think that we'll have like another winter before we have just complete exponential takeoff. I think that this, as you mentioned, this hype is unsustainable long-term. You have enough players that are focused on things. You have enough devs there, but eventually there's going to be a cap at the advancements that happen. And ultimately by the time you can only get to something automating your full job, like that's the Mm -hmm. plateau. You have ideation, you have creation, you have review and you have distribution. If you can figure out how to do all four of those for any role, then it's done. Uh, so I do think that we're going to have another couple years of hype. Uh, and then after that, it will be ubiquitous. But I don't I don't know that we can say it's going to be like technology. Every company is a technology company. Every company will be an AI company or an AI-enabled company. And if they're neither of those, then they're not going to exist in the future unless they're like hard goods and not online. Right. But I, I think that it will continue to be fire, on fire. 2023 was plateauing some things, the app store moment with GPTs. 2024 is going to be multimodal and then the rise of agents, uh, reliable agents. So I think we got a lot of hype left in us. Cool. Good answer. Um, (laughs) Before we close here, I got to ask, so what is the, if you had to pick one thing to give advice about to anyone in media, journalism, in a newsroom somewhere, uh, about AI, what what would that be? Mm. It's a fun question. Um, I did a panel with Mercury about the coexistence of AI and creatives um, mm. it, it, uh, for New York Tech Week, another meeting. It was actually right after our event that we met each other at. Um, and it was amazing to me how many people think that creativity is just this thing. Mm -hmm. that happens like you're struck with a lightning bolt like i'm sure when you have like when you've had just something that you want to create about or you want to talk about or you want to write about like it's not just something that's just like hit you with a lightning bolt it's like you were spending time thinking about some concepts and then all of a sudden this new nuance Mm -hmm. was delivered and you're like oh this is interesting i want to explore this more and then you ultimately sat down and you did the thing and you created it 
right? Yeah. Um, I, I could All be right. bastardizing your process. So <laughs> maybe, maybe well, that's... You know, you, there, you have a realization, you have some kind of occur, something occurs to you. So by thinking about it a lot. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think one thing I would say to anyone in media, journal, all, all that, like, these models have been proven to be really good at discovering nuance that you didn't know was there. What I mean by that is many of the ideas you probably would have gotten to yourself if you would have spent like more time with it. But AI has the ability to iterate 20 years in a couple seconds and get you to that nuance. Hmm. So rather than it being adversarial, I would try to court them to say this is a, it's a partnership with technology. It's an enabler of creativity because I believe creativity is creating the space to be creative is first and foremost, and then doing the work consecutive in enough times where your quality becomes better. And then ultimately that will take you into a place of creativity. So for me, the first thing I would say is partnership. And then the second thing I would say is like the floor has now risen. So make sure that what you are providing is a unique perspective is something that people want to read. If it's just a regurgitation of facts, like no one's going to read it, uh, mm. which sucks because it means you now have to do more. But I honestly think that that is the work that people want to do in the first place. Now, is that always mm. true for everyone? No. But I would say don't view it as an adversary. Uh, it, it can be the enabler of the creativity that you want. Like it definitely has for me. It's a prototyping agent. Um, and then I think the third thing that I would say is like, please write about things that are not AI. just leave it on that like i love reading about ai because i'm working in it but man there are days where i'm just like i just really wish there was a better story about this athlete that i really love or this like picture that i saw in a museum or this event like my hope is that ai doesn't just make us all write about ai like I, i hope that people are still encouraged to write about things that are not ai even when all the engagement's going to those yeah, there's uh, some interesting things still to be discovered about freshly squeezed orange juice, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brendan. This has been great. Uh, where can people sign up for GoCharlie and, uh, and how do they do that? Yeah. So, gocharlie.ai, super simple. Um, you can find us on Instagram at the same handle, Twitter at the same handle. Uh, if you want to hear more takes about AI, I usually try to make them with food analogies or basketball analogies because I'm a Hoosier. Uh, You can follow me on LinkedIn at Brennan Woodruff. Um, There's a nice little dog emoji in my name so that you know it's the right one. Uh, But yeah, gocharlie.ai. We're running a whole bunch of stuff through the end of the year, depending on when this podcast is going to air. So come check us out. Shoot me a note. We'd love to hear more from you. Awesome. This has been the Media Copilot. Please subscribe at mediacopilot.substack.com. I've been Pete Paschal. You can follow me at Pete Paschal on Twitter or the Media Copilot, and we'll be seeing you in the future.